Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. I pray. I'm sorry about a few technical problems I'm having this evening. My laptop is just acting awfully strange. I actually had the, um, well, well let me say that, that this is Saturday, August 19th. I'm sorry, November 19th, 2016. That shows you where my head is at. I'm three months behind rather than 15 minutes. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I actually had the program for protocol number two of our presentation of the protocols of Xeon. I had it about half written, and late this morning I decided to do something completely different so here we go. I hope that the digression will be worth your time. This is the 17th installment of our series of the Protocols of Satan, which is a discussion of the so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zeon from a Christian identity perspective, both historical and religious, and I will qualify that shortly. The first seven of these segments only discuss the legitimacy of the protocols, the arguments that they are a forgery, and some of the arguments that they are indeed valid documents which express ideas that have originated in Jewry and that have motivated the Jews forward in history these past 200 years. We have even further evidence of that which we hope to exhibit here in the weeks or months to come. The previous nine segments of this series discussed the first of the 24 protocols, titled The Basic Doctrine, and took a few digressions to present background material for various topics, such as the evidence that the Jews were in control of the press throughout the West from the mid-19th century, and were therefore in a position to do everything of which the protocols boast. We also took time to contrast a Jewish materialistic view of economy and government, using Frederick Bastia as an example, to a Christian and spiritual view of economy and government, using Adolf Hitler as an example. Of course, this last statement would be laughable in most worldly circles, and that would only prove our point concerning the undue Jewish influence on society through their control of the media and academics. Anyone who laughs without examination at our assertions proves themselves to have been brainwashed by the devil, unless they themselves are devils. Another possibility. Devil, to me, is synonymous with Jew. I'm sorry. But devil could refer to other types as well. We said that our commentary on the protocols is from a perspective which is both historical and religious. This is not necessarily true, but the sentence was made so that those without our worldview may understand it. The Jews are always criticized because their religion is really their race, which is true. But do they really deserve criticism for holding to that view? Identity Christians should understand that the Jewish religion is their race, because that is the reality of history and scripture. And the Jewish books of the Talmud codify their religion in that very manner. We should expect 
that from the Jews. And we should understand that in that regard the Jew is only following his true nature. The failure of whites is that they have allowed the Jew to convince them that such an attitude is wrong, while the Jew secretly maintains it for himself. For white Christians, their own religion should be the care and maintenance of their own race, because that is what is demanded by Christ. But this is reconciled only once it is realized that the Jews are actually the descendants of the enemies of the ancient Israelites, and the ancient Israelites are actually the ancestors of most modern white Europeans. So for us, the history of our race is the basis of our religion, and the defense and maintenance of our race, which is found tr in which is found true brotherly love, is a large part of the substance of that religion. Because we should love our brethren as Christ had loved us. If religion and race are not one and the same, and if their efficacy is not evident in history, then they are artificial and can only result in the destruction of those who would believe a lie, which is also something that is fully evident in the white race today. It's being destroyed because they believe the lies. Throughout our discussion of the protocol so far, we have tried to keep some sort of balance between the impact that the Jews and their methods have had on the world in recent times and the impact that they had on the world in the 18th through the early 20th centuries. The earlier period is much more important because that is the period in which world Jewish supremacy was gained and that period has, has shaped the modern world. Now it seems to many commentators who are aware of Jewish treachery that only recently are the Jews ascended into a position of world supremacy, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Jews assured their own supremacy when they achieved their emancipation in each of the nations of Europe in a process which took about 50 years, the entire first half of the 19th century. Long before their emancipation, the Jews were in control of most of the gold and the finances of Europe, as only they were permitted to practice usury throughout most of the Middle Ages, and they were also employed as tax farmers and collectors of tariffs by the kings and the princes. So throughout most of the history of the nations of Europe during this period, the Jews were the agents of the nobility, and they were used for these very purposes. However, since they could not take part in society as citizens, the undue advantage that they had as moneylenders and tax collectors was limited. Once they achieved their emancipation, they could use their wealth to their advantage in the political sphere, and Christians did not stand a chance. Once the Jews gained political power, they eliminated the very nobility which had been their original source of employment and wealth. It is not a coincidence that the so-called Age of Liberty, expressed in the concept of democracy, arose simultaneously with the emancipation of the Jews. The parasites had indeed consumed the host, and by the 1870s, the German journalist, 
Wilhelm Marr had declared the victory of Judaism over Germanism. Hitler was just a last gasp for Germany. During the period when the Jews were obtaining their emancipation, the precepts expressed in the protocols had already been developed and disseminated amongst the Jews themselves, and they were being expressed in the synagogues and carried out through the Masonic lodges and other secret societies which were controlled by Jews or heavily under their influence. We have quoted Martin Luther, and Martin Luther in 1543 was writing of the Jewish boasts that they had already taken over Christian society in Germany in 1543. Once the Jews came to power, they had begun to be criticized by patriotic Europeans everywhere, and they had persecuted or silenced many of those critics. Their control of the press, however, has been the primary means by which they could conceal their treachery. Where they could not control the press or keep men from voicing contrary opinions, they used whatever harsher means were available to silence their opponents. To its discredit, although this may be by design as well, Wikipedia is silent concerning many of the critics of Jewry. So there is no page, there is no Wikipedia page for Colonel Eugene Nelson's Sanctuary who certainly merits one. Therefore, we shall cite the alternative encyclopedia website, Metapedia, which I am also hearing is a has become a shill site for Jewry, but which does have an article for him. And we shall summarize it here. Sanctuary was born in Heinsberg, Vermont in November 1870, and he lived until March of 1957. He was graduated from the University of Vermont and was a retired U.S. Army Reserve officer and a defendant in the Great Sedition Trial of 1944, which was engineered by the Roosevelt administration to silence its critics or at least keep them too busy to write much during the crucial closing years of the war. Before the First World War, Sanctuary was a civil engineer in Montpelier, Vermont. He served in Russia during the war, working with the Russian Railway Service Corps. During this time, he was a witness to the Bolshevik Revolution. Sanctuary headed a lobbying group called American Christian Defenders and accused President Franklin Roosevelt of conspiring to create a Jewish state where only Jews will own property and reap profits. He was a regular contributor to Reverend Gerald Winrod's publication, The Defender. He issued his literature under the name World Alliance Against Jewish Aggressiveness, and later the imprint Toxin Publishers. Toxin Publishers is noted for having published a book by another colonel, Colonel Winfield Jones, whose story of the Ku Klux Klan is actually said to be an objective history of the original organization. Sanctuary, who was rather 
active in a Presbyterian church, had written close to 500 sacred and patriotic songs with titles including Uncle Sam, We Are Standing By You and A Klansman's Song. We are discussing Sanctuary here because in 1934, under the name World Alliance Against Jewish Aggressiveness, he published a book titled Are These Things So? Taking the title from a verse in the Bible. The book was subtitled, A Study in Modern Termites of the Homo Sapiens Type. And we can see how long ago it was that it was realized and vocalized that the Jew is a parasitical creature. We have only obtained a digital copy of this book, and that is probably the only copy we will ever have. On the inside cover is a handwritten note signed by the author which reads as follows, and the book must have been a gift to another colonel, to Colonel Jennings C. Wise, ardent follower of constitutionalism, cherished by all true patriots. This book is gratefully inscribed by the author, and it was dated April 22, 1938. Jennings Wise was also an author of history and wrote a book entitled The Battle of Newmarket, the subject being the Civil War, which is still available in reprint editions today. His papers are archived at the Virginia Military Institute. Now, Sanctuary is not without his faults. Like all of the denominational Christians of the Middle Ages and more recent times, he too made the fatal mistake of accepting Jewish claims as to their own identity. That is the biggest lie of history as it enables the Jews to foist their many other lies upon an unsuspecting Christian society. So this errant view will indubitably taint some of his otherwise excellent observations. One of his observations we are going to cite here, although it is not his, it belongs to Henry Ford. One of those observations is found in his chapter, Conspiring Termites as we have taken opportunities to contrast Jewish thinking with Christian thinking in other areas, so it shall be here, where sanctuary actually only borrows from an excellent observation on a Jewish mode of obtaining wealth, which is contrary to Christian thinking. However, the observation is actually taken from the International Jew by Henry Ford and the Dearborn Independent. Doing this, we show that Sanctuary was thoroughly familiar with that work on the Jews, which was about 13 years before this book was published. So we read the following in reference to the Jews from pages 29 and 30 of Are These Things So? They, referring to the Jews, are now without a mission of blessing. Few of their leaders claim a spiritual mission. But the mission idea is still with them in a degenerate form. It represents the grossest materialism of the day. It has become a means of sordid acquisition instead of a channel of service. I guess that Sanctuary didn't realize the Jews are descendants of Cain, whose name means to acquire. The essence of the Jewish idea is its influence on the labor world is the same as in all other departments. 
the destruction of real values in favor of fictitious values. The Jewish philosophy of money is not to make money, but to get money. The distinction between these two is fundamental. That explains Jews being financiers instead of captains of industry. It is the difference between getting and making. The creative, constructive type of mind has an affection for the thing it is doing. The non-Jewish worker formerly chose the work he liked the best. He did not change employment easily because there was a bond between him and the kind of work he had chosen. Nothing else was so attractive to him. He would rather draw a little less money and do what he liked to do than a little more money and do what irked him. The maker is always thus influenced by his liking. Not so much with the getter. It does not matter what he does so long as the outcome is satisfactory. He has no illusions, sentiments, or affections on the side of the work. It is the gold that counts. He has no attachment for the things he makes, for he doesn't make any. He deals in the things which other men make and regards them solely on the side of their money-drawing value. The joy of creative labor is nothing to him, not even an intelligible saying. This description is so very evocative of the parable of the trees of the forest, found in Judges chapter 9 that it is surprising that neither Henry Ford nor Eugene Sanctuary seem to have noticed it. In the parable, all of the usefully employed trees would rather continue in their employment, which they enjoyed, than set it aside to rule over the other trees, all except the bramble, which is naturally useful for nothing, which doesn't produce anything. So even the bramble... when it was appointed king, was surprised at the naivety of the more noble trees. However, here we digress, and there is another reason why we are introducing Eugene Sanctuary's writing. Chapter 14 of his book is titled, Concerning the Protocols, and there Sanctuary has compiled pertinent information which demonstrates that the ideas found in the protocols were extant among other prominent Jews from before the time that the protocols were published. So here we hope to present the material found in that chapter as one more witness to the fact that the protocols are real. Now, I understand that we've already done this with Nesta Webster and other work in the first seven segments of the series, so here we are really adding to that. And this is chapter 14 of Are These Things So? by Colonel Eugene Nelson Sanctuary, titled Concerning the Protocols. And again, Sanctuary didn't write most of this chapter. He is a compiler taking it from another source. Frequent mention is made of these protocols in our writings in order that the reader may not lose sight of the claim that woven into the warp and woof of these documents is to be found the cause of much of the troubles which the nations face today. The reference has been made to a telegram 
which the head of the Zenith sent to a Jewish representative in Congress, in which Mr. Adler emphasized the point that Mr. Ford had classified the articles in the Dearborn Independent as a bundle of lies, or words to that effect. Now, of course, Mr. Ford never said that. It does not require a Sherlock Holmes in the realm of literary science to prove that the construction of the protocols was from within, meaning from Jewry, and not from outside sources. A study of current events since their production also prove that the power which produced the protocols had the power to accomplish their program, or, as Mr. Ford has been quoted, that everything was coming along just as announced in the protocols. Ten years ago, the Bretons, the title of a publishing company, the Bretons published a small leaflet called Four Protocols of Xeon and emphasized that these were not the protocols of Nihilus. It is charged by Jewish leaders that the later protocols are mendacious, but such a charge will not apply to the ones just named, meaning these which we are about to present, and which will now be reproduced for the benefit of our readers. A prefatory note to the second edition says, the second edition of the pamphlet Four Protocols of Zeon, produced by the Bretons, is there, or is there not, a world plot organized through the centuries by the secret center of Judaism for the destruction of Christianity and the Christian nations? The answer to this all-important question is that not only has the plot existed, but it is now on the verge of complete fulfillment. The contents of the pamphlet here given to the public trace some of the steps in the working out of the conspiracy which has come to light. Mr. Lucian Wolfe once complained in the 19th century of the diabolical attitude which Christianity offers to Judaism. Whenever a Jew makes a statement of that kind, it must be read in the exact reverse sense. Judaism is the Satan of Christianity, and we will call the, Breton, the, the, the Bretons on this a little later on in this, in, in this presentation. So as we proceed, Sanctuary will present these four so-called Protocols of the Jews from the aforementioned pamphlet, which are not from the so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zeon, published by Nihilus. The writers of the pamphlet, published by the Bretons, should be commended for recognizing that Judaism is the Satan of Christianity. But Judaism is the description, I'm sorry, is the descendant of the serpent adversary of the Old Testament as well. Judaism is the Satan of the New Testament, there's no doubt. Judaism is also, the people known as Jews are also the Satan of the Old Testament. Continuing with Sanctuary's quote from the Breton's pamphlet, the satanic method of the Jew power is well expressed in the following extract from a novel, The Way to Zion, published in Germany in 1912 by a Jew, Dr. Kurt Munzer, and he quotes, We Jews have spoiled the blood of all the races of Europe. Taken as a whole, everything today is Judified, an interesting word, 
Our senses are alive to all the races. Our spirit reigns over the world. This is 1912. Wilhelm Marr announced it in 1870. We are the Lords. All that is might today is child of our spirit, the spirit of the devil. Let the Goyim hate us. Let them drive us out. Let our enemies laugh at our physical weakness. We cannot be driven out any more. We have eaten ourselves into the peoples. We have vitiated the races of the Europeans. We have tarnished and broken their power. We have made everything of theirs foul, rotten, decomposed, and decayed. There speaks the true spirit of Judaism. And Judaism is the Antichrist. The four protocols of Zion, these are sanctuary's words, are four variations playing the same tune and by the same performer. There is much in the fact of Bolshevism itself, in the fact that so many Jews are Bolshevists, in the fact that the ideals of Bolshevism at many points are consonant with the finest ideals of Judaism. And that is a quote which Sanctuary made from the Jewish Chronicle of April 4th, 1919. Here is the introduction to the Breton's pamphlet. What is a protocol? Literally, a protocol is something glued onto the front of something else. In its usual sense, it is a term of diplomacy and means the summary or presses of an official document gummed on its front page. Hence, the word has come to mean minutes or a rough draft of any document or record of proceedings. It is in this sense that the term is used in the title of the book known as the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. The later work purports to contain minutes of certain secret meetings of the Elders of Zion at which they were laid bare the aim and purpose of the general headquarters of the Jewish nation for the conquest and enslavement of the entire world. A translation of it was first published in this country in England in 1920 and is now issued from the Breton's Printing Company, the publishers of the same pamphlet which we are reading. Its genuineness has been challenged by the Jews, but the challenge only refers to the origin of the document and has nothing to do with its bearing on the facts of recent history, which is really all that matters. That it should be repudiated by Jews is only natural, since it was never intended that Gentiles should see it. But the protocols of the elders do not by any means stand alone. There are many other parallel statements of Jewish policy dating from many centuries past and coming down to our most recent times. Of these we now present four to our readers. The first of the four dates from the 15th century and, as it appeared in a Rothschild-owned journal, it is not likely that this will be pronounced a forgery. It was reprinted in, the, in 1880. The second is the Manifesto of Adolf Cremeau, 
addressed to the nation of Jewry on the occasion of the founding of the Universal Israelite Alliance, and maybe his name should be pronounced Cremio. I'm not positive it's French, right? Or, or Yiddish French, I don't know. This has been pronounced a forgery, the manifesto of Adolf Cremio. This has been pronounced a forgery, and something much less committal, especially written for Gentile consumption, has been produced as the real thing. The unfortunate part of the business is that the forgery and something much less committal, evidently a reference to the substitute document, represents something especially written represents especially written history than that which is claimed to be genuine. The grammar of the last sentence here is difficult. It proclaims three incontrovertible truths that the English I'm sorry, that the Jewish nation is the enemy of all other nations. To Christians, there should be no surprise here, since Paul of Tarsus wrote to the Thessalonians that the Jews are contrary to all men. And the second, that Jews claim that they are a people chosen to dominate the whole earth and take possession of all the riches of all peoples. And of course, this is a spurious claim, since the Jews are not the Old Testament Israelites. And third, that the power of all nations is now in their hands, and the Jews think they on the eve are on the eve of their complete conquest of the rest of the human race. And here they were certainly correct. The date of this protocol, number two of our series, is 1860, the alleged but disputed manifesto of Adolf Cremio. Nine years later appeared the celebrated funeral oration of Rabbi Reichhorn, pronounced over the tomb of Simeon ben Yehuda. This was in 1869. Whether this tomb is a mythical tomb, analogous to Solomon's Temple of the Masonic Lodges, or a real tomb, we are unable to say. But the ceremony did take place, and the Jew, Sonol, S-O-N-O-L, took with him to it a friend named Reedcliffe. Reedcliffe revealed the secret by publishing the substance of the oration, for this he is said to have paid with his life, and Sanal was killed in a duel a few years later. Appended to the prophecies of this protocol, we have put a few of the events which have happened in fulfillment, and of course we would not call them prophecies, we would simply call them intentions, written intentions by people who understood that they could perform what they intended, that they were in a position to do so. It will be seen that there is a close correspondence between this protocol, the Cremio Manifesto, and the epistle emanating from the Prince of the Jews in 1489 AD and published in a Rothschild magazine. It is probable that when the latter was published, it was not imagined that any Gentiles would even think of connecting it with other documents emanating from Jewry or with modern happenings. The last of the four protocols has, like the first, 
never been called in question by the nation of Jewry. It was found on the body of a Jew, Zunder, commander of the 11th Sharpshooter Battalion of the Bolshevik Army. It reveals identically the same plans and purposes of the Jews for world dominion and revenge which pervades them all. This one especially gloats over the Jew conquest and enslavement of Russia. Now under the subtitle Judaism. Before giving the text of our four protocols, it will be well to say a few words about the religion of Jewry. British Jews, and they're using quotes around words like religion and race, and British and German and Russian, and they're appropriately using single quotes to show that they disown the labels. British Jews, or so-called British Jews, go through wonderful contortions in order to make it appear that they are Englishmen of the Jewish religion. In point of fact, religion and race are interchangeable terms with the Jew. There are no so-called British or so-called German or so-called Russian Jews. There are only Jews. As the Jewish world puts it, Jewry is one. And the late author Cohen said Judaism is a religion which is only possible to a certain race. The very word Israel, as representing the Jewish nation, and this is their words, of course, implies that with the Jew, its religion and his race are the same thing. Belief in his descent from the younger son of Isaac, that is his religion. Now, of course, of course we must address this. Of course, for Christians, the unfortunate part of this lie is that they believe it. As our author said of the quote from Lucian Wolfe, whenever a Jew makes a statement of that kind, it must be read in the exact reverse sense. Judaism is the Satanism of Christianity. The truth is that Jews descended from the elder son of Isaac, from Esau, the race mixer. Today, they do as their father, and that is the proof of which tree they were spawned from. Although we can also prove as much with exacting historical details. So why do the authors of this pamphlet from the Bretons understand that Jews lie about everything and take it for granted that they're telling the truth about their biblical identity? The New Testament and their own historian, Flavius Josephus, as well as the Old Testament, all deny the Jews as the Israelites of the Bible. In very explicit terms. Under the title, The Fatal Morality of the Jew. In the prefatory letter written by Dr. Oscar Levi, or Levy, to Mr. George Pitt Rivers, the world's significance of the Russian Revolution, we find this passage dealing with the morality, or rather immorality, of the Jewish religion. Says Dr. Levy, There has been no progress, least of all moral progress, and it is just our, meaning Jewish, our morality which has prohibited all real progress, and what is worse, which even stands in the way of every future and natural reconstruction in this ruined world of ours. 
And our author says that this is a passage which all Christians must lay to heart. There is no wonder that the Jew power which controls the government of this country, meaning England, insisted on the expulsion of Dr. Levy. Dr. Levy is one of those very rare Jews who can look at the world from a human standpoint. And in a Jew, that is an unpardonable crime with Jewry and, according to the Talmud, is deserving of the death penalty. It is a cardinal sin in a Jew not to favor a Jew at the expense of a non-Jew. Hence, a Jew in office must appoint a Jew to every available post within his gift. And, of course, this is what accounts for the success of Jews. Although they have completely fooled the Goyim into thinking that their success comes from their superior ability, a lie which their press perpetuates, which their book authors perpetuate. Under the subtitle, Number One, A Protocol of 1489, we read that the French publication, the Revue des Etudes Juvaises, or the Journal of Jewish Studies, which we will include a PDF copy with this program. We haven't had the time since it's all in the French language, and it's not in a searchable format. We haven't had the time to flip through the hundreds of papers to see if we could find this particular article. But perhaps we will um, hope that one of our listeners or one of our friends has the time to do that, who has more familiarity with French than we might have. The French Review or Journal of Jewish Studies, financed by James de Rothschild, published in 1882 documents, which showed how true the protocols are in saying that the learned elders of Zion have been carrying on their plans for centuries. On January 13, 1489, Timor, Jewish rabbi of Arles in Provence, wrote to the Grand Sanhedrin, which had had its seat at Constantinople, for advice as the people of Arles were threatening the synagogues. What should the Jews do? This was the reply, and it should be mentioned that in 1489 the Ottoman Turks were in control of Constantinople and the Jews evidently had no problem having their Grand Sanhedrin seated there. This was their reply. Dear beloved brethren in Moses, we have received your letter in which you tell us of the anxieties and misfortunes which you are enduring we are pierced by as great a pain to hear it as yourselves. The advice of the grand satraps and rabbis is the following. As for what you say, that the king of France obliges you to become Christians, do it, since you cannot do otherwise. But let the law of Moses be kept in your hearts. Of course, the Jews don't have any laws written in their hearts. Here there is a footnote, the truth of which we recently discussed in our presentations on the Converso problem in Spain. And the footnote says that from page 137 of Essays and Lectures on Orders of Jurisdiction by Reverend Puller, at one time in Spain a certain number of the bishops were really Jews in belief.
and that was absolutely true. <coughs> Converting to Christianity under false pretenses, the rabbis of Jewry were quickly made bishops or elevated to other stations in the church or in civic life because Christians were fooled pretty easily, evidently, or they were bribed pretty easily. To continue with the answer of the Grand Sanhedrin to the people of Arles, to the Jewish people of Arles, as for what you say about the command to despoil you of your goods, the law was that on becoming converted Jews gave up their possessions. Make your sons merchants, that little by little they may despoil the Christians of theirs. As for what you say about making attempts on your lives, make your sons doctors and apothecaries, that they may take away Christian lives. And of course, we have discussed it. Martin Luther had attested in 1543 that Jewish physicians were employed in slowly poisoning their Christian patients to death. Today we suffer that same thing throughout the entire world. And continuing with their answer, As for what you say of their destroying your synagogues, make your sons canons and clerics, in order that they may destroy their churches. And we've seen the result of that. As for the many other vexations you complain of, arrange that your sons become advocates and lawyers, and see that they always mix themselves up with the affairs of the state, in order that by putting Christians under your yoke, you may dominate the world and be avenged on them. Do not swerve from this order that we give you, because you will find by experience that, humiliated as you are, you will reach the actuality of power. And that's supposedly signed by certain initials and the title Prince of the Jews on the 21st of Kaslaw, roughly equivalent to November of 1489. And our authors say that although it is nearly half a millennium since the above was written, there is a dreadfully modern ring about the clauses. Compared with the items of the following protocol of 1860, it will be seen that the spirit of both is identically the same. And under the subtitle, number two, a protocol of 1860, we take this protocol from the Morning Post of September 6, 1920, so it was reprinted then. A correspondent writing in reference to the hidden peril draws attention to a manifesto ordered in, I'm sorry, issued in 1860 to the Jews of the Universe by Adolf Kremio, the founder of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, or Universal Alliance of Alleged Israelites, and the well-known member of the Provisional Government of 1871. Adolf Kremio while Grand Master of the French Masonic Lodges, offered one million francs for the head of William I of Germany. On his tomb he requested the following sole inscription to be inscribed. Here lies Adolf Kremio, the founder of the Alliance Israelite Universelle. The Manifesto, the Manifesto of Adolf Kremio, emblem, it contained an emblem on the top, 
picturing the tablets of Moses, and a little lower, two extended hands clasping one another, and, as the basis of the whole, the globe of the earth. So it's a mo it, it's a an an emblem expressing Jewish world supremacy. The motto was all Jews for one and one for all. And he wasn't a musketeer. The union which we desire to found will not be a French, English, Irish, or German union, but a Jewish one, a universal one. Other peoples and races are divided into nationalities. We alone have not co-citizens, but exclusively co-religionaries. A Jew will under no circumstances become the friend of a Christian or Muslim before the moment arrives when the light of the Jewish faith, the only religion of reason, will shine over all the world. Scattered amongst other nations, who from time immemorial were hostile to our rights and interests, we desire primarily to be and to remain immutably Jews. Our nationality is the religion of our fathers, and we recognize no other nationality. We are living in foreign lands, and cannot trouble about the mutable ambitions of countries entirely alien to us, while our own moral and material problems are endangered. The Jewish teaching must cover the whole earth, Israelites, no matter where fate should lead, through scat though scattered over all the earth, you must always consider yourselves members of a chosen race. And of course, we must take a short moment to address this. Peter called the tribes of Israel scattered abroad, those who were Christians, who were never considered Jews, a chosen race. There were scatterings of the children of Israel in the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, and even before them. And none of those people were ever called Jews, although their scattering is often described in the Old Testament as having happened at least as early as over 600 years before Christ, depending on the particular scattering. Some of them were 1,200 years before Christ. When the ancient Israelites were scattered, God said of them that those who forsook him, who would not become Christians, and ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. For the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. Isaiah chapter 65. Then Christ tells us of his enemies, the Jews, those who would not follow him. But you believe me not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. And then he said, They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations until the times of the nations be fulfilled. When Christ said that, he was speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, which was going to happen in 70 A.D. In between the time when nearly all the Israelites were scattered before 600 B.C., and the time of the birth of Christ, 
the Edomites and other Canaanites, the ancient enemies of Israel, had infiltrated into the people of Judea, into the people, the remnant at Jerusalem, and taken over the kingdom. Herod was an Edomite. All of his political appointments and religious appointments were Edomites. So the scattering of the chosen people of God ended over 600 years before Christ. There were very few of them in Judea. But the scattering of the Jews, the enemies of God, happened after they themselves had crucified Christ and Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jews deceived simple Christian minds by confusing these two scatterings, which happened many centuries apart from one another. The diaspora of the Jews happened in 70 AD, and of that, Christ said, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And they were. But he wasn't talking about the Israelites, the true Israelites, who had been scattered all the way back when Isaiah and Hosea were writing in the 8th century BC, when Jeremiah and Ezekiel were writing in the 6th, 6th and 7th centuries BC. Returning to our source, the Jews coming from the scattering of the enemies of God, but claiming they're from the scattering of the people of God, which is a lie. Returning to our source, if you realize that the faith of your fathers, and we are still citing the manifesto of Adolf Kremiot, if you realize that the faith of your fathers is your only patriotism, if you recognize that notwithstanding the nationalities you have embraced, you always remain and everywhere form one and only nation, if you believe that Jewry is the Jewry only is the one and only religious and political truth. If you are convinced of this, you Israelites of the universe, then come and give ear to our appeal and prove to us your consent. Our cause is great and holy, and its success is guaranteed. Catholicism, our immemorial enemy, is lying in the dust, mortally wounded in the head. The net which Israel, or the Jews, is throwing over the globe of the earth is widening and spreading daily. And the momentous prophecies of our holy books are at last to be revealed. The time is near when Jerusalem will become the house of prayer for all nations and peoples. And the banner of Jewish monodeity will be unfurled and hoisted on the most distant shores. Let us avail ourselves of all circumstances. Our might is immense. Learn to adopt this might for our cause. What have you to be afraid of? The day is not distant when all the riches and treasures of the earth will become the property of the children of Israel. Actually, the children of Esau. But the Jews are not the children of Israel. And the Jewish interpretation of prophecy is absolutely opposed to the Christian interpretation of prophecy. The Jews reject God and everything godly and only seek to twist his word into lies for their own political advantage. If they really believed that they were the people of the book, 
They would be farmers and shepherds and not usurers. They would be against things like abortion. They would not be sodomites or the leading lights in the cause which promotes sodomy. All of those things being absolutely contrary to the God of the Old Testament. And there's a million other sins of the Jews. Returning to our cause, we have a postscript. More than 60 years have elapsed since this protocol was written. And the riches of the earth are now almost entirely in the possession or under the control of the children of Israel. And I say that because that is what the text says. That's what the author wrote, but it's not true. The Torah, said the Jew poet Heine, is the Jew's portable fatherland. Cremio says practically the same thing. The faith of your fathers is your only patriotism. The Jew regards all non-Jews as foreigners, and he is an alien everywhere. Protocol number three amplifies this. The Discourse of Rabbi Reichhorn The Torah is actually only a facade to the Jews. Nowhere in Scripture does it imply that the children of Israel should rise to world hegemony by stealing, cheating, and lying, or by usury, which God despises. Even Abraham fairly purchased a tomb from an accursed Hittite, and David fairly purchased a field from an accursed Jebusite. The God of the Bible does not cheat, steal, and lie but rather tells Christians and real Israelites alike to always be fair and just, even with their enemies. The fruits of the Jew prove that he is the devil of both testaments, new and old. Item number three, a protocol of 1869, the fatal discourse of Rabbi Reichhorn. In its issue of 21st October 1920, La Vielle France, or evidently that means the Old France, the name of the publication, published an extremely important Russian document in which the following passage occurs. There is a striking analogy between the protocols of the elders of Zion and the discourse of the Rabbi Reichhorn, pronounced in Prague in 1869 over the tomb of the Grand Rabbi Simeon ben Yehuda and published by Reedcliffe, who paid with his life for the divulgation. Sanal, who had taken Reedcliffe to hear Eichhorn, was killed in a duel sometime afterwards. The general ideas formulated by the rabbi are found fully developed in the protocols. In its March 10th issue, 1921, La Vielle France gives the version of the funeral oration which was published in another publication, Jewish Russia. It is perfectly clear that the funeral oration and the protocols of the learned elders of Zion come from one and the same mint. Both are prophetic, and the power which made the prophecies has been able to bring about their fulfillment this oration is so important that we append to it an account of the fulfillment of each of the sections.
there can no longer be any doubt as to whose is the power which is disturbing the world, creating unrest, and at the same time reaping all the profits. Jewry is enslaving all Christian peoples of the earth. There is a Jewish world plot, and it now stands finally and completely unmasked. And it begins. Every hundred years, we, the sages of Israel, have been accustomed to meet in Sanhedrin in order to examine our progress towards the domination of the world which Jehovah has promised us and our conquests over the enemy, Christianity. Now, the obvious lie is that when Yahweh promised the world to the children of Israel, Christianity did not exist by that name. The reality is that white Christians are actually the heirs to the promise, and they will prevail against the devil, which is the Jews themselves, attempting to steal the inheritance from Jacob, which Esau had lost due to his fornication, or race mixing. So the Jews seek to destroy the world with fornication. Rabbi Reichhorn's discourse goes on to say, This year, United over the tomb of our Reverend Simeon ben Yehuda, we can state with pride that the past century has brought us very near to our goal and that this goal will very soon be attained. Gold has always been and always will be the irresistible power. Handled by expert hands, it will be the most useful lever for those who possess it and the object of envy for those who do not. With gold, we can buy the most rebellious consciences, can fix the rate of all values. The current price of all products can subsidize all state loans and thereafter hold the states at our mercy. Already the principal banks, the exchanges of the entire world, the credits of all the governments are in our hands, supposedly in 1869, and that's probably a very safe statement at that time. The other great power is the press. By repeating without cessation certain ideas, the press succeeds in the end in having them accepted as actualities. One of these lies is that the Jews or the Israelites keep repeating it enough and people start to believe it. The theater renders us analogous services. Everywhere the press and the theater obey our orders. By the ceaseless praise of democratic rule, we shall divide the Christians into political parties. We shall destroy the unity of their nations. We shall sow discord everywhere, reduce to impotence. They will bow before the law of our bank, always united and always devoted to our cause, and that exact thing we see all around us today, and throughout the history of the last 110 years of the American Republic. We shall force the Christians into wars by exploiting their pride and their stupidity, and tell me this hasn't worked over and over again. They will massacre each other and clear the ground for us to put our own people into the immigration that's flooding Europe. The possession of the land has always brought influence and power 
In the name of social justice and equality, we shall parcel out the great estates. We shall give the fragments to the peasants who covet them with all their powers, and who will soon be in debt to us by the expense of cultivating them. Our capital will make us their masters. We, in our turn, shall become the great proprietors, and the possession of the land will assure the power to us. Let us try to replace the circulation of gold with paper money. Our chests will absorb the gold, and we shall regulate the value of the paper, which will make us masters of all the positions. We count among us plenty of orators, capable of feigning enthusiasm and of persuading mobs. We shall spread them among the people to announce changes which should secure the happiness of the human race. Of course, this was before the days of television, when they only had to put a pretty face up there to say anything they wanted to say. By gold and by flattery we shall gain the proletariat, which will charge itself with annihilating Christian capitalism. We shall promise workmen salaries, of which they have never dared to dream, but we shall also raise the price of necessities, so that our profits will be greater still. And I think the real intention was that they would annihilate Christian free enterprise, because capitalism is the only thing the Jews that understand in that sense. That's probably the term that they chose, or the translator perhaps chose it. In this manner we shall prepare revolutions which the Christians will make themselves and of which we shall reap the fruit. By our mockeries and attacks upon them, and we're bombarded with this all the time, all the time, this is long before the time of television, that this is, um, this is prescient even in 1934. By our mockeries and our attacks upon them, we shall make their priests ridiculous than odious, and their religion as ridiculous and odious as their clergy. Then we shall be masters of their souls. For our pious attachment to our own religion, to our own worship, will prove the superiority of our religion and the superiority of our souls, and even the so-called atheistic Jews never attack Judaism. They always attack Christianity, but even so-called atheist Jews never stand up on a stage at a Las Vegas casino or at a New York theater and attack Judaism and make fun of Judaism. I've never seen it. Not that I really watch, but I'm sure I would have heard of that one, I think. We have already established our own men in all important positions. We must endeavor to provide the goyim with lawyers and doctors. The lawyers are occurrent with all interests. Doctors, once in the house, become confessors and directors of consciences. But above all, let us monopolize education. By this means we spread ideas that are useful to us and shape the children's brains as suits us. If one of our people should unhappily fall into the hands of justice amongst the Christians, we must rush to help him, find as many witnesses as he needs to save him from his judges, until we become judges ourselves. The monarchs of the Christian world, 
swollen with ambition and vanity, surround themselves with luxury and with numerous armies. We shall furnish them with all the money their folly demands, and so shall keep them in leash. Let us take care not to hinder the marriage of our men with Christian girls, for through them we shall get our foot into the most closely locked circles. If our daughters marry Goyim, they will be no less useful, for the children of the Jewish mother are ours. Let us foster the idea of free love, that we may destroy among Christian women attachment to the principles and practices of their religion, and the patterns of history proved that these things were prophetic even in 1934, never mind in 1869. And the actions of Jews promoting these things with awesome consistency throughout history prove once again that these things are indeed true and that this must have been the plan of Jewry all along and that they do have a great amount of unity amongst themselves in order to execute such plans <coughs> from generation to generation to generation. Jewry is a racial problem. For past ages, the sons of Israel, and I hate saying that, but in this context anyway, despised and persecuted, had been working to open up a path to power, they are hitting the mark. They control the economic life of the accursed Christians. Their influence preponderates over politics and over manners. At the wished-for hour, fixed in advance, we shall let loose the revolution, which by ruining all classes of Christianity will definitely enslave the Christians to us. Thus will be accomplished the promise of God to his people. And, of course, that revolution happened at different times throughout the world in different nations. In Germany, it was Weimar Germany. In the United States, it was the 1950s and 60s. But it was Jews behind it at every turn. Of course, there are no such promises of God that would ever be accomplished in these or any similar manner. However, all of these things which the Jews had plotted to do to Christians are elements of the punishments which God imposes on the disobedient. Christians, accepting the idolatry of the Jews, the Jews are able to punish Christians under the permissive will of God, under the subtitle, The Fulfillment of the Prophecies, Our Authors from the Bretons, are going to discuss how how all of these things were fulfilled by their time, which was the 1930s. And they say that within the half century, which has elapsed since this prophetic oration was made, Judaism has taken giant strides in its conquest over its age-long enemy, Christianity. That the word enemy is used advisedly, because they put it in quotes, is proven by the statement of the son of a rabbi who, after his conversion to Christianity, said that his father told him to spit at a Christian church when he passed the same as its founder was a bastard. And that's a note from the author. That's a note from 
Eugene's sanctuary. I think he doesn't understand that Jews really can't convert to Christianity. Purse, press, politics, these are the engines by means of which the elders of Zion have made their conquest. Four of the Christian empires, Russia, Austria, Germany, and France, have already succumbed to the Jewish power. This is 1934. Only the British Empire is left, and all its most precious institutions are already under Jewish control, which is working ceaselessly for its final betrayal. I'm sorry, this is 1934, but Sanctuary is citing a booklet which was written at least a couple years earlier than this. And I don't know the exact date. He doesn't provide it. Like many other Anglophones and Anglophiles, Eugene Sanctuary and the writers for the Bretons were rather blind to the fact that the Jews first came into the control of Britain and only then of these other four empires. They did, however, at least recognize that there was a certain degree of Jewish control in England. They recognized that, but they didn't think that it was over for England. <clears throat> they go on to say that the gold of the nations is the real Lord of Israel. The gold mart of England is closed on the Jews' holy days. Quoting the Evening Standard for October 12, 1921, they say, Gold was unregistered today owing to the Jewish religious observance. In the Jews' expert hands, gold has bought parliaments, premiers, parties, politics, principles, and consciences, as the doings of the parliaments, which was once England's, reveals Jews have flooded all nations with paper money retaining the gold themselves. And of course they were probably producing ten times more paper money than they actually had gold on hand, or more than that. They control all the exchanges of the world and fix or unfix the rates of exchange as suits their interests. Jews have raised prices side by side with wages, and so have kept up industrial unrest, which is one of their chief assets. As for the principal banks and exchanges, the names of Rothschild, Gwinner, Blackroder, Schroeder, Schuster, Goldschmidt, Goshen, Spire, Schiff, Loeb, Kahn, Kuhn, Kassel, Samuel, Warburg, Guggenheim, sufficiently attests the overlordship of Jewry in Lucre's empire, the empire of money. But without control of the world's press, the power of gold could not be maintained. The press of one country would not be sufficient, hence the necessity of securing the control of all lines of communication, press agencies, wolf bureaus, renters, Agency Havas, the German and the French news agencies, Marconi's agency, advertisement agencies, as well as the actual ownership of papers, such as exists throughout the world today. In our own country, there is not a single daily morning paper in Britain, except the Morning Post, which has any freedom from Jew control. The theaters and cinemas, and we would doubt the Morning Post, the theaters and cinemas 
are equally tied and the British public are treated to Jew propaganda. Jew propaganda plays like The Little Brother, Welcome Stranger, The Wandering Jew, and Mr. Levy's Lavatory and Bedchamber plays in his Grand Gignal. Everywhere the press and the theater are under our orders, and the Jews are so well placed in regard to cinemas that they boast that they can censor their own films. And he's citing an article published in the Jewish Guardian. Liberalism is one of the chief instruments of Jewish power. Through preaching this doctrine and getting into the machinery of liberal parties, Jews have exploited for their own ends the generous instincts of all the peoples who have received them into their communities. Jews have preached democracy, and through their dupes, through getting their dupes to believe it, have succeeded in riveting on their necks the chain of shylocracy the rule of the crowned usurer, Shylock Rothschild, who was admitted to England's parliament by liberal statesmen and now rules the world. Jew banks appear to be many, but in reality there is only one. Reduced to impotence, the nations bow before the law, not of Moses, even, but of the Jews' bank, always united and always devoted to the Jewish cause. Thanks to the terrible power of this bank, Jews have forced Christians into wars without number, culminating in the Great War, World War I. Wars have this especial value for Jews that Christians massacre each other and make more room for the chosen people. Moreover, as Werner Sombart says, wars are the Jews' harvests. The Jews' bank grows fat on the wars of Christians. Nearly 100 millions of Christians have been swept off the face of the globe already by the war which the Jews planned, and which is not yet by any means over, in spite of official peace celebrations. And the lords of gold are stronger than ever. And this was, of course, published in 1934, if, if, if not a couple of years sooner. We only know the date of the publication of Sanctuary's reprint in this book. Here where it says wars are the Jews' harvest, quoting Werner Sombart, there is a footnote. And it says that over against this statement of the Jew Sombart, who is recognized as an able historian, we find in the New York Times, November 24, 1933, when receiving a medal from a deputized representative of the president, that the recipient, Mrs. Carrie Chapman Catt, said, I have long believed that the Jews, being the only people scattered among all the nations, have a peculiar call to the leadership against war. And here is another instance where true patriots must observe that Mrs. Catt is as far away on her history as she is, according to the patriotic women of America, on her interpretation of real Americanism. So I guess that our author wanted to show us the type of people getting awards from the president in 1933. Continuing with our source, by Jew-made laws, 
the ancient proprietors of England are being rapidly deprived of their estates, and farmers and laborers are at the same time becoming more and more completely enslaved under Shylock's power. Jews have the gold, and we have paper money. Jews give the paper the value which suits their interests so that a good harvest may mean ruin to a farmer just as readily as a bad one through Jewish manipulation of prices and exchanges. At the present day, for purposes of selling, a litter of pedigree puppies will fetch as much as a good-sized stack of hay, although the hay will feed just as many horses as it did when hay was five times its present price. In other words, the prices paid to farmers are being severely deflated in the 1930s. Oratory is another great asset of the gold power of Jewry. Shinwells in Scotland, Mons in Wales, De Valeras in Ireland, Isaacses and Samuels in England and India, with their Gentile front megaphones like Lloyd George, Asquith, Churchill, McKenna, MacDonald, Henderson, Lansbury, Tom Mann, Watson, etc., are all serving the Jews' ends. By gold and false promises, they turn the proletariat against Christian capitalists, who are often not capitalists at all, but actual producers, and divert their attention from the real Shylocks, who are the actual villains of the peace. By raising the workmen's wages to an impossible level, they destroy trade, and by raising the price of food, they produce it at once unemployment and starvation, which make the enslaving power of Shylock and his tribe greater than ever. And I don't think our author really understood that capitalism is not Christian, and it's not the same as free enterprise. This, I'm sorry, thus come revolutions in which Christians do all the fighting and of which the Jews reap all the profits. Russia is completely destroyed by the Jews. Revolution is broken out in the Empire of Britain. Ireland is almost a republic in fact, if not in name, and the Jews are prospering amazingly. Our so-called British cabinet is in point of fact a Bolshevik cabinet in the preliminary stage. Thanks to Jewish educationalists in the press and on the platform, the churches are suffering from creeping paralysis. The Jews are preaching atheism to Christians that Judaism may remain alone in the field. Mond, with his English review, was doing the educational work of his tribe in polluting the minds of his English readers. The power of Jewry has put its own sons, or sons of Gentile agents, in all positions of strategic importance. We have seen the Lloyd George-Sassoon combination presiding over the empire. Isaac, Samuel, Meyer over India, Samuel over Palestine, Mond over the health of the kingdom, to name only a few samples in this country, and in other countries it is even worse, while the League of Nations, as the Jews themselves boast, is essentially a Jewish concern. As for monopoly of education, the name of Magnuses, 
Kalanzes, Waldsteins, Les, How, Lowe's, Hertogs, Mons, etc., show how rotten with Judaism are the educational establishments of this country. The professorial chairs of Germany and France are almost filled with Jews. And, of course, Dr. Karl Wiebe in Germany substantiated that just a couple of short years later. Jews are so fond of law that they are rapidly monopolizing it. This helps them in many ways. How Jews defeat justice is shown in the Dreyfus case. <coughs> and by the case of the Jews who murdered Peritamus, the Roman Catholic priest of Damascus, and his servant. The murder was a ritual murder, but thanks to the efforts of the Jewish nation headed by Adolf Crimeau of France and Moses Montefiore of England, the murderers, although tried and convicted on the clearest evidence, escaped the death penalty. The judgments of Rufus Isaacs on the bench are an interesting study in this respect. And that was only one of many blood libel cases where that same result had occurred. The crowned monarchs of the world are led by Jews, as the German emperor was led by Rothenau before and during the war. Jews lend monarchs in order that they may work with it their own destruction. Jews can manipulate republics more easily than they can monarchies, and that is one reason why they foster revolutions. The intermarriage of wealthy sons and daughters of Jews into aristocratic families has polluted almost all the once noble houses of the Christian world. Not to mention the Jew peers. There are the examples of Lord Rosebery and the Rothschilds, and members of Jew duchesses, and numbers of Jewish duchesses. Lord Crewe is married to the daughter of a Rothschild, and Lord Derby married his daughter to Lord Dalmini, a Rothschild's son. Lord Sheffield married his daughter to the Jew Edwin Samuel, alias Montague. Lord Curzon of Kettlestone is the son-in-law of a Jew. After society, commerce, Lyons control the catering trade of the metropolis. Samuel controls petrol. Mond controls nickel and chemicals. Samuel and Gluckstein and their co-tribesmen control tobacco, etc., etc. And so the accursed Christians tamely submit to the yoke of Israel, or Esau, which is more proper. The British Empire, so far as concerns its own coin, which the Jews control, is bankrupt. But its real wealth is greater than ever. Its spirit, its courage, its ancient literature, before Jewry touched it with polluting fingers, its enterprise, its deep-down desire to fulfill its mission in the world. This is England's real wealth, and this wealth Jewry hopes to annihilate by means of revolution and by planting England's crown firmly on Shylock's head. England's hour has not struck yet. May the sleeping giant awake in time to burst the paper bonds which England's indolence and England's generosity have combined to suffer Shylock to wind round England's limbs. And of course, 
That's Pipe Dream. The author already mentioned the rebellion in the British Empire. The only reason why it had not crumbled sooner was the need for another war against Germany, or England probably would have been brought to poverty much sooner than that. Continuing, continuing with the final of the four protocols from our source, this is entitled, or subtitled, A Protocol of 1919. A Russian newspaper, Triziv, Priziv, P-R-I-Z-Y-V, of February 5th, 1919, published in Berlin, contained an interesting document in Hebrew, dated for December of 1919, and there must be an error in the dates here, which was found in the pocket of the dead Jew Zunder, the Bolshevik commander of the 11th Sharpshooter Battalion, throwing light on the secret organization of Jewry in Russia. In extent, it ran as follows. Secret to the representatives of all the branches of the Israelite International League. Sons of Israel, meaning the Jews. The hour of our ultimate victory is near. We stand on a threshold to command the world. That which we could only dream of before is about to be realized. Only quite recently, feeble and powerless, we can now, thanks to the world's catastrophe, meaning the Great War, raise our heads with pride. We must, however, be careful. It can surely be prophesied that, after we have marched over ruins and broken altars and thrones, we shall advance further on the same indicated path. The authority of the alien to us, alien religions and doctrines of faith we have, through very successful propaganda, subjected to merciless mockery and criticism. We have brought the culture, civilization, traditions and thrones of the Christian nations to stagger. We have done everything to bring the Russian people under the yoke of the Jewish power and ultimately compelled them to fall on their knees before us. We have nearly completed all this, but we must all the same be very cautious, because the oppressed Russia is our arch enemy. The victory over Russia gained through our intellectual superiority, which is a lie, may in the future, in a new generation, turn against us. Russia is conquered and brought to the ground. Russia is in the agony of death under our feet, but do not forget, not even for a moment, that we must be very careful. The holy care for our safety does not allow us to show either pity or mercy. At last we have been allowed to behold the bitter need of the Russian people and to see to it in tears. By taking from them their property, their gold, we have reduced this people to helpless slaves. Be cautious and silent. We ought to have no mercy for our enemy. We must make an end of the best and leading elements of the Russian people, so that the vanquished Russia may not find any leader. Thereby, every possibility will vanish for them to resist our power. We must excite hatred and disputes between workers and peasants. War and class struggle will destroy all treasures and culture created by the Christian people. But be cautious, sons of Israel. 
our victory is near, because our political and economic power and influence upon the masses are in rapid progress. We buy up government loans in gold, and thereby we have controlling power over the world's exchanges. The power is in our hands, but be careful, place no faith in traitorous shady powers. Bronstein, Applefarm, Rosenfeld, Steinberg, all of them are like unto thousands of other true sons of Israel. Our power in Russia is unlimited. In the towns, the commissariats and commissions of food, house commissions, etc., are dominated by our people. But do not let victory intoxicate you. Be careful, cautious, because no one except yourselves will protect us. Remember, we cannot rely on the Red Army, which one day may turn its warfare on ourselves. And of course, at this time, in February of 1919, it wasn't quite a victory yet for the Jews in Russia. It would take them another two years, I think, to finally secure that with certainty. Here there is a footnote where it says that in a testimony given by Dr. George Simons before a special committee of the United States Senate, he stated that in 1918, out of 588 members of the controlling group in Russia, only 16 were real Russians, and all the rest Jews, except one American Negro, and that 265 of these Jews came from the Lower East Side of New York City. And the report referred to is popularly called the Overman Report. We have a copy of that and have read quite a number of pages from it. It is possible that we may employ it later in this series of presentations, especially the, um, the section where that same Dr. George Simons is trying to explain to certain United States senators that just couldn't understand it that the Jewry was really a race and not merely a religion. And there's a great dialogue between them that lasts for several pages in that regard, if I remember it properly. This final protocol continues. Sons of Israel, and of course we object to that title, but we have to use it because that's what's in the text. Sons of Israel, the hour for our long-cherished victory over Russia is near. Close up solid your ranks. Make known our people's national policy. Fight for eternal ideals. Keep holy the old laws which history has bequeathed to us. May our intellect, our genius, protect and lead us. Notice there's no reference to God. Signed, the Central Committee of the Petersburg Branch of the Israelite International League. So they accept the title of Israel. They reject the idea of God. It will be noted that the above was found in Hebrew, or probably Yiddish, as were the originals of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and as are all the secret documents of the Jews. There are plenty of manifestos in Christian languages that are intended for the Goyim to read. Of these we need to take no account. Israelite International League can be none other than the Alliance the Universal Alliance of Israel, founded by Adolf Kremiel and headed by Rothschild. All four protocols tell the same tale of malice, 
revenge, cupidity, and murderous hate against Christians and Christianity. Judaism is Satanism, and no amount of ritual and Kabbalistic camouflage can hide this fact. And with this, that's the conclusion of our chapter. With this, we do not need much of a conclusion ourselves. We only wanted to take this occasion to present yet another witness to the planned treachery of the Jews against the Christian world. Eugene Sanctuary was one of many such patriotic men speaking out against the Jewish subversion of American society in the early 20th century. However, he just didn't have the budget that the Jews had because it is Satan who prints the money and he will do with it whatever he will. In our next segment, we shall return to the protocols of the learned elders of Zion and protocol number two. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night.